blame someone for the rain. It's probably the boisterous farmers always praying for rain. At least we know you're a righteous man. Stucky, what are you doing back there? Yeah, so RUF students are on their way to Florida right now for summer conference. That's why they're all missing here. It's not that no one will sit next to Taylor or Ashlyn anymore. Although maybe, since Stucky moved, we'll see. Anyway, head over to Nehemiah 5 this morning. Uh, get that in front of you. Let's, let's get the Word of God where our own eyes can see it and, and track through it, and especially because I'll be having you look at things, to see things as, as we go. Now, as you're heading there, let me remind you, in the, in the beginning, the world that God created was perfect, right? Absolutely perfect. Never since the fall, ever since the first sin, it seems like everything falls apart. Relationships are fractured, bodies are broken, the earth groans, and the selfishness and, and greed of corrupted hearts has been institutionalized, uh, leading to all sorts of oppression and injustices in the societies that we actually live. Uh, that's true for us today. It's our own experience. We see that. It's also uh, was what was true for the Israelites living in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day that we're going to be looking at today. Now, just as a quick reminder, uh, last week we left off, because it's going to feel like an extreme right-hand turn today, because uh, this wall has been everything, right? We're building the wall, and there's enemies, and, and suddenly they're strapping swords to their legs and, and staying there all, all, all 24 hours a day there and, and prepared, ready for an attack while they build this. And the reason we're going to see this strong right turn is because so far what we've been seeing is all these threats come from the outside, from enemies, from the others. And today we are seeing this mounting division developing within this community, this covenant community, as the issue of injustice arises here. And I'll tell you right from the start, the overarching premise is this, it is always right for God's people to respond to injustice with righteous anger and true repentance, and with a renewed commitment to, to biblical, God-fearing practice of justice, right? And we're going we're gonna to see that today. Uh, but let's, let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're going to read chapter 5, the first section. I've got these glasses. I've got to put them on. It's not that I care what I look like. They just feel weird. I'm not used to it yet. Anyway, I need to get used to it. Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry. And I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the, the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, 
The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and, and the percentage of the money, grain, wine, oil, and that you have exacted from, from them. And then they said, we will restore these and, restore, and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we come to it with our own personal baggage, with our own cultural baggage. Please free us from the baggage so that we may be challenged to think about injustice in a biblical and godly manner. As always, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enlighten our minds to understand and to believe and to be shaped by your holy scriptures. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so that big right turn, they have this defense plan in place, they're getting back to work, uh, and then suddenly there's this outcry of the people and their wives. This has been uh, a long time coming, right? This is not immediate, the, the way that they get to this point, this is... This was going on long before Nehemiah was ever in the city, for sure. Uh, the wives are specifically mentioned here because most of these uh, that are serving on the wall, most of them actually live outside of the walls in these small towns that are, are nearby. And uh, while the, the husband has been away, right, following after this uh, idolistic cause, right, while, while the husbands are, are doing this, this good work and, and serving, while they are seeking to rebuild the, the city of the Lord and to protect the temple that's there, it's, it's not without cost to, to their family. <clears throat> it's not without cost back home. You see, for their, their volunteering, isn't, it isn't putting any food on the table, and that's the issue. In the first five verses, we see three distinct groups here. They probably overlap in some regard. Uh, group one, you see them there in verse two, they are upset because they have uh, a bunch of family members. We're a big family, right? And, and clearly, they're not on some gluten-free diet here as they're, they're seeking grain to feed their family with, and they're, they're unable to actually get any of this grain. And, and so their accusation is this, we, we need food, and we don't have power, and we don't have funds so that we can actually get any of this food. And that, this highlights, right, the age-old issue of this disunity between the haves and the haves-nots, have-nots, um, which often leads to further injustice. Group two has a related but different thing. They're, they're crying out that we've, we've mortgaged our fields, our, our vineyards, and our houses. Kids, college students, adults that have never paid attention to these things, right? Do, do you understand what this means when, when something's being mortgaged like this? Say, say tomorrow, I'm talking to kids here uh, specifically, uh, you, you go to your house and, and you open the fridge and it's just empty. Nothing's there. Uh, it's all been eaten. You look in the freezer, you're going to get some chicken nuggets, but there are no chicken nuggets. It's empty too. There's no Pop-Tarts in the, in the cabinet, right? There's no food in the house at all. And you think, oh, well, we can go to Dylan's. We can just get more food. No big deal. 
Um, we'll go get nuggets, but you have no money, nothing of which to provide or buy this with. And so you, you go to someone, say, you know, John Dunning, because he's in the service. You get to be this guy. Uh, John Dunning shows up, and he's like, uh, you go to him, and you're like, hey, John, can I borrow $50 so we can buy chicken nuggets and eat tonight? And he's like, absolutely. I will, I will do that for you. I will give you $50, uh, but now I own your house until you pay me back those $50 for those nuggets. Uh, you get to keep living in the house, but every month you've got to pay John $10. And here's the thing, though. Only five of those $10, or some percentage, uh, uh, that you're paying him actually goes to paying back those $50, which means that you're going to need to pay John $10 for 10 months before you can even get possession of your house back, which means you're going to pay, Stucky, you have a PhD, $100. Yeah, so well earned. That was worth the money. Uh, Right? $100 for the $50 that John lent you. And it could be even worse percentages. So if you, if you can't pay John back, he gets to keep your house and you have to move out and you still don't have any chicken nuggets. Now, all this might make you wonder, if, if that's the kind of deals we're talking about, if that's the, the options, why in the world did any of the Jews actually mortgage their houses, their fields for this? Why did they make that deal? Because they are absolutely desperate. I don't, I don't know if in this country we can even understand the absolute desperation that we're talking about. Because what good are these fields if we're all starving to death is, is what they're dealing with. They needed it to survive. <clears throat> and on the flip side, greed has driven these wealthy Jewish nobles to inflict an injustice and, and greater poverty on their fellow Jews who are, who are in this desperate situation. And the whole thing, we're told, is made more difficult because there's a famine going on. So the crops aren't growing. Um, that's what's occurring. It's a, it's a form of a price gouging is what we're seeing here. In our country, every state, or I believe every state, uh, has a price gouging law that comes into effect when there's some natural disaster, tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever that might look like. The Kansas version says it like this. <clears throat> For any supplier of a necessary property or service to profiteer from a disaster by charging 25% or more than the pre-disaster price for such goods or services. Now, it goes on to label the crime as this, an unconsciable, I can't pronounce this word, an unconscionable business practice. And the fine for doing so is $10,000 per violation and making restitution, right? Give back money to the person, whatever you gain from them. But more importantly, God's word in Ezekiel 18 and other places forbids charging these giant interest rates from those who are in desperate need. Now, keep in mind, I won't go into this, but this is not the same as a business loan or a house loan. Every situation where you are, you're charging interest, right, because of the, uh, the risk that is taken on it or other, other things to explain that, that's not what we're talking about. If your parents mention we have a mortgage on the house, kids, don't panic. You'll have chicken nuggets probably. <clears throat> You'll be all right. Um, but, but that's kind of the idea of, of taking advantage of someone in, in, in a desperate situation. So then uh, group three, the third group, you see them in verse four here. They, they also had to borrow money, only not for grain, but for taxes. They have to pay the, the Persian king, right, to pay him uh, what they owe because they actually own some land. They, the, the paying of taxes was as detested in 500 BC as it generally is today. Uh, this group has borrowed money from fellow Jews to pay these taxes, uh, from their covenant family to pay these taxes, and, and the deals are terrible. And in fact, they're so terrible that they're having to sell their own children, their own family members, into what is debt slavery. 
right? This is a, a common practice at, at the time, and um, it, it wasn't forever, though. There were stipulations within the Mosaic Law that, that said you, after six years of serving, because you owed a certain amount of money to someone, after six years, that, that all debt, no matter how much, was erased completely, and that individual was declared free again. For, furthermore, God declared that every 50th year was what was called the year of jubilee. Uh, at this point, all slaves or uh, indentured servants, whatever you want to say, slaves really, were set free no matter h- how many years they had served so far. No matter how much they had paid off at that point, they were set free. And any land that had been mortgaged, that had been taken, that someone else had, it was all being returned back to the original owner. Things were set back to the way they were. Um, it's it just a reset. So, so then verse 5 gives special attention to the daughters who have already been slaves. Many, many believe this is a reference to some form of forced prostitution even, or, or that these daughters had been made this second wife uh, to someone that a great amount of money was owed to. All right, so, so that's the situation. That, that's the accusation. That's all the details. How are you processing this? I know it's way back. It's hard to think of this in, in modern terms yet, and, but I, I ask because being filled with compassion for those around you who are suffering injustice of any form, that, that's a clear implication of the impact that the gospel has had upon you, right? Solutions and support that arise from injustice are going to look different depending upon what the actual needs are, the situation is. But, but it always begins with this, this uh, with a Holy Spirit-filled concern for, for the ones who suffer. That's where it begins. Now, now look at verse 6. Let's, let's see how Nehemiah responds. Because this is Nehemiah res- in, in, in responding. He's speaking to everything he's just learned. The same things we've just learned. <clears throat> and, and he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and, and their words. He is very angry. And that's the right response. That's how he should feel. That is the godly response. This is the kind of righteous anger that we see in the scripture that we are supposed to have. That's what we're supposed to have. The the exploitation of the poor is, is what has angered him so much. Does the exploitation of the poor anger you today? As I study this passage this week, I, I in my own heart have been convicted, if I'm honest. I guess I'll be honest. Um, I tend to do that American middle upper class, not because I'm upper class, but a middle class thing too, uh, where, where I just assume that there's no exploitation of the poor. That doesn't happen. If you're in poverty, it's because of your own foolish decisions. Always. And I know in some situations that's exactly why someone finds them in, in poverty, but, but not always. And, and either way, this passage is, is teaching me, it's teaching us to think more biblically in regards to injustice. After all, God's concern for the poor is revealed in nearly every book of the Bible. We see our Lord show great concern for the poor. And yet I have no time for that. No, no sense to even let my mind go there. So he's angry. I don't think I've ever been angry for this. Anyway, he, he's angry, and, and where does Nehemiah's angry, anger lead him? I mean, no, notice what he doesn't do right off the bat. This is important. He, he doesn't say, 
you know what? Just don't pay the king's taxes. Just don't pay him. He has no right. And, and he doesn't organize some violent riot or, or go physically fight the nobles. We will just beat them up. He doesn't cancel the nobles. You're done. He, he doesn't even respond in the raw anger like so many are prone to do today. He's feeling anger, right? But it's not that raw, just lash out like a wild animal kind of thing. In verse 7, we learn that he takes counsel with, and how many of you expect that to end with the name of someone wise? Like he took counsel with his grandfather, and they talked it through. Uh, but that's not what he says. He, he says, we took, I took counsel with myself. Sounds weird. I, I had this sociology professor in college who would often say, he's real proper, he'd wear a full suit every single day. Anyway, he'd say, uh, so I said to myself, self, you must face this head on. It was always this. I said to myself, and then he would quote whatever he said to himself kind of thing. It's a little like that, less weird. Um, he's taking a breath. He's taking a, a moment to consider, what have I just learned? How, how do I respond to this in a, in a godly manner, in a way that's not, not wild animal, in a way that actually considers the need here? It isn't just me getting it off my chest or lashing out. How much trouble would be avoided if you and I would just learn to take counsel with ourselves in moments of anger? All the things you wouldn't have to go back and apologize for later. All the things you wouldn't be embarrassed for doing or saying. All the things that you know don't bring honor to your Lord. Derek Thomas beautifully points out, anger is a dangerous emotion. He's not saying wrong, Right? But anger is a dangerous emotion, difficult to control, and almost impossible to align with a rational response. To avoid responding in kind, saying and doing things that, that he might later regret, Nehemiah takes a moment or two to consider his response here. Right? Or as, as James 119 famously teaches, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It, it's rather surprising here if we're honest we've seen so much of, of Nehemiah prayed right Nehemiah prayed Nehemiah prayed and we don't see that here that doesn't mean he didn't he might have prayed but but it's not even mentioned here there's a chance that maybe he didn't and maybe he didn't simply because the decision to bring charges was quick and easy since since God's will in regards to the rich exploiting the poor fellow Jews here is so perfectly clear in scripture he didn't have to consider that what 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 should we do here right what is this wrong he knows it's evil, and evil needs to be called evil. Now, now, keep in mind, every claim of systemic injustice that we hear today may not be truly injustice. But Christian, have you ever considered it might be? How, how quickly we dismiss everything. And so Nehemiah lays out his charge to the nobles in verse 7. He says, you are, I want to say extracting every time, but that's not the word. We, you are exacting interests each from his brother. God forbids this. Deuteronomy 23, 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything. And yet that's exactly what they have done. See, the, the heart of the issue is that they are united together under the, the covenant of the Lord. They are family. And thus they are not to receive interest from someone. They, they are supposed to be caring dearly for these people, doing what's best for them, helping them get out of this situation. Now, you see, Nehemiah is, is actually more like the nobles here than he is the general population. And, you know, and in fact, many of these 
nobles are probably some of the most helpful people in this project that they've been doing so far. Um, they would have been some of them his new friends. Uh, and yet here he is bringing charges against them because that's what needed to happen. Do you let what others think of you influence your decision in these kind of things? Do you base whether you speak or stay silent on the fear of God or on the fear of man? And listen, it goes both ways, right? Some are silent, some won't confront sin or call things sin uh, because they're so afraid that people won't like you if you do that. You're so afraid of, well, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to think I'm mean or harsh if I, if I call out sin? That, that's one way we do it. On, on, on the flip side, some are rude and cruel and unnecessarily harsh because they, they also care what people think of them. They just care what different people think of them. Care what, care what God thinks. Right? Be wise in your words. Don't be afraid to, to call out sin when necessary, but there's no need to be more harsh than necessary either. Right? Care what God thinks. Now, after confronting the nobles directly, Nehemiah gathers everyone together on one part of this so the nobles can hear from themselves how their, their greedy, ungodly, unconscionable business practices are affecting people. It's a uh, it's a little like that scene in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? When Uncle Eddie from Kansas, uh, he goes and gets Uncle Clark's boss and drags him back to the house, kidnaps him uh, because he, he wants to show him, look how your, your greedy business decision is actually affecting your, your employees. Well, only Nehemiah doesn't kidnap anyone. He doesn't have a steel plate in his head. Uh, Nehemiah then makes these public accusations against the noble. First he says, listen, our our fellow Jews have been sold into slavery in other nations, and we've used collected funds, maybe public funds, to purchase them back, right? To get them in, into their freedom, bring them back here. And, and here you are putting them back into slavery, the very people that we have purchased, so that we have to buy them out of slavery again? You're getting rich on our sacrifices. Shame on you. This is an appeal to the nobles conscience, right? And at the end of verse 8, we see the nobles give no defense. They were silent and could not find a word to say. That's the right response here for them. Then Nehemiah's line in verse 9, one of my favorite sentences in this whole book, he says, the thing you are doing is not good. It's not, it's not good. Um, th this is a, a moral and ethical argument, and, and we should probably all confront each other far more than we do with that sentence, right? Uh, you know what, you, you're watching that morally bankrupt show because what, it's entertaining to you? The thing you are doing is not good. You're slandering your, your boss. You're, you're joyfully propagating a, a rumor regarding him or her. The, the thing you are doing is not good. The, the culture that we all live in today is, is loves moral relativism and they detest biblical absolutes. In other words, you, you and I, we, we swim in an ocean where People do what they want to do rather than what they ought to do. That's just the way that things are today. But Christian, you're not like that. <clears throat> you're not. We are people of the word. We, we find moral absolutes in these holy scriptures because the Lord has put them. And, and, and feeble as we are, we make every effort to, to do what the Lord says we ought to be doing. Not, not for salvation, not to earn the love of the Lord, but because we have been saved, because we do have the love of the Lord. 
So anyway, Nehemiah is clear here that your greedy practices of injustice are not good, it's wrong. Also in verse 9, he appeals to, to, to Scripture, to theology, but he's saying that, you know, we, we ought to be walking in the fear of God. Walking in the fear of God. Here, here Raymond Brown explains it. He says, <clears throat> the Hebrew people knew that, uh, knew that doctrine must not be divorced from life. Belief and behavior are inseparable components of authentic faith. It, it was basic to the Israelite understanding of God that his children were expected to live like him. Being holy as he is holy, merciful as he is merciful, and righteous as he is righteous. And so Nehemiah's accusation then is saying that the greedy way you are living, the unjust business practices you're doing, these are evidence that you do not walk in the fear of the Lord. Or in the words of Romans 1, that you, you don't honor God as God. And you should. John Calvin once said that all wickedness flows from a disregard of God. Just think in your own life. All wickedness flows from a disregard of God. And so Nehemiah is here insisting that justice towards the poor is central to following God. I think the question for us here is, how would your behavior, your actual practice of life change today if you did fear God or feared God more, more rightly. Proverbs 16.6 tells us, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So then, verse 9 ends with an appeal to the quality of, of their testimony. After all, who, uh, who among the surrounding nations would believe that, that Israel's God was kind and merciful and compassionate and all these things, when all they see among his worshipers was was selfish cruelty and, and merciless greed towards one another. Speaking from the positive perspective on things, the, the, our Lord said in Matthew 5.16, right? Let your sh light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. <clears throat> there are ways that we can live in all cultures, no matter how corrupt, that are seen as light that reflect gloriously on our Lord. Doc Brown, not Back to the Future, but a different Doc Brown once said, people with consistently attractive Christian lives not only make faith visible and credible, but challenge the unbelief of their contemporaries. Wouldn't it be something if, if unbelievers looked at our lives, at, at, at your life, and, and they thought to themselves, I, I think they are nuts. They believe in a resurrected Jesus they have all these weird views on sexuality and whatever else, right? But, but maybe there's something to these people. I can't deny that they are kind and merciful, that they are selfish, that they love each other well, that they love and serve others well. Wouldn't that be something? Now look at verse 10. Keep moving. <clears throat> Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, Nehemiah is either confessing his own part in this, uh, which is very unlikely due to his anger earlier, the way it, he it, it did that. More likely what he's doing is he's giving an example. Right? There's another way for you to, to help people out, and, and here's what it looks like. Right? He's saying, look, you know, me and these other guys, we've been lending out money, we've been lending out grain as well, only we're not charged interest. Uh, so how about we all follow this example and we stop charging 
uh, exacting interest from them. Why don't you do it the way that we're doing it? And then in verse 11, Nehemiah continues to instruct them on how to do good, showing them what a godly response at this point looks like. He says, right, give back their fields, give back their vineyards, their orchards, their, their houses, give it all back. Whatever percentage you've gotten in their, their wine, their oil, whatever, you give it back to them. He's essentially calling for this immediate, in this exact moment, a year of jubilee. Who knows if they've even acknowledged one in the last 400 or so years, right? Give it all back, he's saying which is a huge request. It is. I don't know if we notice that from this side. This is wealth that the nobles, right, that they certainly feel is theirs. On some level, they must feel like they earned it. They must think, well, you know, think about all the things I lost in this process, too. There's all these things that'd be easy for them to explain. This is going to cost us too much. And it probably terrifies them to think about giving this stuff back because, right, there's a famine going on. They're in a bit of a recession themselves. But the Lord's working in the hearts of these nobles and they agree to give it all back and it requires, and to require nothing. Let, let's be honest, this, this is a terrible business move. Horrible business move. But it's a good move in the economy of God. It's a good move in the economy of the community. In, in light of eternity, this is a brilliant move. And, and so Nehemiah quickly calls in the the priest, to make the nobles officially agree, he's, he, he's worried they're going to go back on their word. That, that's what's really happening here. Nehemiah, you know, I hate to say it, but he's kind of bringing in the lawyer. Sign these contracts. You can't get out of it now. Uh, that's kind of what's going on. And, and a- after that, right, Nehemiah goes all wild-eyed prophet on them. He's, he, you know, wearing this robe as everyone would have been wearing, and he shakes it out. And the idea is they'd have stuff tucked away sometimes in their belt loops, whatever it might be. Uh, things of value there, and, and he just goes shaking it. And, and the thing you don't realize is, is, is doing this, visually what's going to happen is stuff's going to be going everywhere, like the cartoon and they shake someone upside down and everything comes out. Uh, it, it's kind of like that, and, and, and he just goes off saying, you know, so may God shake out every man from his house, from his labor, who does not keep the promise that he would be shaken out and lose all these things if he will not keep his word. That, that's what he's, he's saying here, and everyone gathered together and they said amen that's a hebrew word it's never translated in any language every place you see it spanish french whatever it's amen Uh, but it means faithfulness it means true and so this passage right that began with such great disunity among god's people ends with them all together saying amen and praising the lord so the question is what do we what do we make of all this what do we do with all this First, answer me this. As you read this, who do you most naturally relate to in this story? The poor Jews that are suffering injustice? The wealthy nobles that are causing injustice? Nehemiah, who's confronting injustice? Or, or is there indeed a fourth person who never shows up in this passage? Are, are you the apathetic one, indifferent to it all? In Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul says to all who have been redeemed, to, to all who have been made new in, in Christ, right? To all who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, he, he says to them, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The love of, of God and the gospel compels us to be angry at the things that anger the Lord. Com- compels us to, 
compassion and to speak boldly on behalf of those suffering under the unjust hand of the wicked. And listen, don't let CNN or, or Fox News or trending hashtags or anything else like that, don't let these things define what is justice and injustice for you. Those words have been absolutely corrupted in our culture. Some of the worst things in the world are called injustice, are called, yeah, injustice right now. Some wonderful things, right? It's all mixed up. Do not get your information from there. Um, finally, don't feel you must advocate for, for everyone everywhere. There is a, a weight, be, because we live in a world where every, all the information, there's probably a small tribe in Papua New Guinea suffering injustice right now, and, and you can pile that on your shoulders and, and try to carry that weight and, and all this stuff. And, and what's happening is this, this fatigue is happening where suddenly you don't care about anything at all. But, but you need to know, you, you don't have to advocate for everyone everywhere. Nehemiah addressed a specific instance uh, of injustice in and around a specific city. That, that being said, is, is there injustice in the world today that, you, that should be making you righteously anger? Are there people that you do need to advocate for? That you actually can? That, that you can do that for? And keep in mind, a, a hashtag, that's agreeing with something. That's not what's going on here. Don't think you've done anything for anyone if you hashtag something. But, but do this. Here, here's where I would say I'd like us to go. So that you and I would begin to, to ponder and, and pray about this. That pray for wisdom on, on what your involvement might look like. Pray for where, where are there injustices around you. It's not an easy thing to answer. It's not. I wish I could come and just list off some things. There are some things in my mind. If you're struggling, I'll, I'll help you name a few of them. But, but begin to pray. Ask the Lord to show you where there is injustice in the world around here and, and what it might look like for you to, to get involved, for what it might look like for you to, to fight that, for that righteous anger to become a godly response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a, in a grumbling culture that seems to call everything injustice, please open our fatigue, our apathetic hearts, to see what is truly injustice, injustice according to your word. Please, please draw us out of the, the normal ruts that maybe we go down in this. Help us to, to see with eyes that are in, in line with the scriptures that we might see injustice. Teach us to care about the poor because you care about the poor. Lord, if we are suffering under some injustice, please set us free. If we are causing some injustice, please give us conviction of heart to repent and to set things right, even if that is costly to ourselves. If, if we are in the position to help end some injustice, give us wisdom to know how we can contribute rightly. That we might move beyond just being angry. Father, teach us to, to love you and to love others far more than and we love money. In the glorious and merciful name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.